The word Islam simply means submission. Okay, so it means submission to Allah, which is how they refer to God. Um, and then Muhammad is the man we're going to be talking about a lot tonight. I don't like he is, keep the racism maybe to yourself over there. Jeez. I don't like him. Oh, I th- what did you say? I didn't say No, I'm talking at Parks. I said Bubba. I heard something. I'm not going to repeat what I heard because it was, I heard something bad. Moving on. Strike that from the record. So, um, Muhammad is the man who is recognized as founding this religion and one who follows Islam is, uh, Dave, will you shut those back doors for me, bro? One who follows Islam is called a Muslim. And the word Muslim means one who lives their life according to God's will. And so that, that's just, that's surface level stuff. We're going to get into it a little bit deeper here. And so we have the prophet Muhammad. And so just like the Mormons had Joseph Smith and then the Jehovah's Witnesses had uh, Robert Rutherford, or I can't remember his name, uh, this religion also has a main character. And he was born in Arabia in the city of Mecca in AD 570. So what does AD 570 mean? So we count uh, the Roman calendar uses Christ's death. So 570 years after that is when Muhammad is born. So this is now um, one of the youngest religions that's a major religion in the world as far as like time goes. It's a very young religion. He was born from a prominent and highly respected family. And after his birth, shortly after his birth, both of his parents would die. Okay, his mom, his dad died first, and then his mom would die when he was six. And then his grandfather would take him in, and then his grandfather died. And so he ends up growing up with a guy named Abu Talib, who is his uncle, who is a herdsman. And so uh, Muhammad gets into the caravan trade, and he goes on a lot of travel where he's basically a traveling salesman. And so he visits Syria, Persia, all throughout his life growing up. And then at age 25, he married uh, a woman named uh, Khadijah, a wealthy traveling merchant, another traveling salesman. Um, and she had been raised by Ebionite Christians. Okay, so if someone says to you, you know, the Bible and the Quran are similar. They have a lot of the same people in them. That is true on a surface level. But a lot of people, like scholars, believe this, this marriage, the Ebionite Christians were were a group of Jewish people who denied the deity of Christ. What does that mean? They didn't believe uh, Jesus was... They didn't believe Jesus was God. They just thought he was a man. And so scholars believe this is where Muhammad learns his inaccurate understanding of what the Bible teaches. Like he kind of marries into this family that kind of believes a little bit about Christianity, but most of it's kind of halfway truths. And so they think this is where he gets some not so good information about the Bible. Then Muhammad would say uh, in, the, in the year when he was visiting Mecca in 610 that he was visited by the angel Gabriel. We heard that name before, Gabriel. Yes. And so he claimed that Gabriel visited him multiple times during a three-year period, and uh, he received revelations that would become the Quran. Okay, um, and, and, and traditionally, the Quran has 86 surahs or chapters, uh, and it's, these were all revealed to Muhammad during his time while he lived in Mecca, and the remaining 28 that would come later when he came on a different journey to Medina. 
So a lot going on there, but he basically says that he was told these things by the angel Gabriel. No, he did not. I'm going to get to that. So Muhammad could not read or write. So we'll come to that later. Now, there are no pictures of Muhammad. Okay. Now, uh, they um, believe it is, is high blasphemy to make an image after him. And so that's his name. And that's all you'll ever see. Like people do not draw him and there's no pictures of him. Uh, and we also have that tradition in our uh, understanding of biblical Christianity to not make uh, images in the name of God, not to make idols or things like that. But the first two people to accept Muhammad's message were his wife, remember Khadijah, and then his cousin. Um, and so the first convert outside of Muhammad's family was this man named Abu Bakr, and he was he's very important to uh, Islam. And so this is what uh, Muhammad began calling these people in these areas who were polytheistic. What does that mean? Multiple gods. And so he started to go to these areas where there were idols everywhere and was actually being a, quote, good moral person. And he said, get all of these idols out of here. Uh, we're not going to worship multiple gods. We're going to worship one true God, which he would call Allah. And so after years of rejection, uh, persecution, and warfare, Muhammad would journey to another place called uh, Yathrib in 622, and this was called the Hijira. And so this is actually the beginning. This is such an important date to them. This is the beginning of their calendar, the Muslim calendar. Um, the message of Islam then found great acceptance in Medina. The, the Muslim community grew and grew, and Muhammad was able to grow an army, to draft an army enough to capture the entire city of Mecca, which he then purged of all the polytheism. He got rid of all the idols. He kicked them all out. He kicked everyone out that was charging people to visit these multiple idols. Uh, and so now Mecca is one of the most holy places uh, in Islam. And so we're going to look at that later. People journey to Mecca as a part of their re religious devotion to Islam. Now, he died in 632, and then that guy named Abu Bakr became the first caliph. Now, these are names that you may not understand, but a caliph or a caliph is the religious leader. How Catholics have the pope, Muslims have a caliph or a caliph, a person that is at the very, very top of their religious organization. Now, for those of you that don't know a lot about Muslims, there are two main groups. Do anyone know what these groups are? So if you know anything about your Gulf War and your history when there's skirmishes in the, the Middle East, they're the Sunni Muslims and the Shia Muslims. 80% of the world's Muslims, 80% of that 1.8 billion are Sunni, okay? They're more relaxed. They're not liberal by any sense. They're not progressive, but they're relaxed. Then there are Shia Muslims, who's about, you know, the other 12%. More like 10%, and then there's like a 1% group um, that are just um, kind of mystical, that they don't really follow the Quran. I can't remember their name. Um, but the Sunnis are the majority of the world's Muslims. And so they disagree with each other who should be in charge. The Sunnis believe that whoever God picks to lead uh, Islam is the leader. The Shias believe that only people from Muhammad's bloodline should be the leader of 
of Islam. And so they're, I'm not going to get into that, but they go into war after war after battle after battle over century over century of who should be in charge because of that fundamental disagreement. All you need to know is that the majority of the world's Muslims are Sunni Muslims. Um, Shia Muslims are much more, much more conservative, much more strict, much more, uh, if you think countries like Afghanistan, Iran, like if you think about what Muslims sometimes wear here, they wear hijabs, right? Where their face is, uh, is not covered, but their hair is. You get to Iran, Afghanistan, they wear what's called burqas and, and, uh, and niqabs, which a burqa, you can't see anything. A niqab is like this. And so much more intense, much more strict about especially how women present themselves in society. But the majority of the world's Muslims are Sunnis. So the teachings of Islam is um, it's pretty straightforward. The Quran is their sacred scripture. It's about four-fifths the size of the New Testament. So it's a pretty small book. It includes 114 chapters. And while all the ideas, Griffin, are credited to God, Muhammad dictated parts of the Quran while the rest of the writings came from disciples who remembered what Muhammad teached, taught after he died. So unlike Christianity, there's not a direct inspiration of God to an author, but rather there's an inspiration of God to Muhammad, then Muhammad to his disciples, then his disciples to the people. All right, so there's this un, it's convoluted line of how we now have what he says is divine. Now, much of the Quran jumps from one time and place to another. There's no narrative unity. If you think about your Old Testament, if you had to sum up the Old Testament for me, how would you do so? Like if you summed up the, the, um, the 39 books, what would you say like the main idea is? A path towards Jesus. You see a creation. You see God choose a people. And you see those people basically make mistakes repetitively. But he chooses a people. But there's this idea that the whole story kind of has a narrative flow to it, especially if you read it, how it's organized in most of your Bibles today, um, which is a, can- a canonical organization to help this story flow together. Um, if you were a Jew, you would read it differently. But nonetheless, it jumps all over the place. And Muslims do claim that it's copied, that it was copied from an original in Arabic, which lies in heaven. Even though Muhammad could not read or write, they say it was copied from an original in Arabic. And so in addition to that, to the Quran, Muhammad developed teachings called sunnahs, which is S-U-N-N-A-H, and that means path. And the sunnah became a a base for traditions built on how Muhammad conducted himself as a prophet, how he handled things while being a guide, a judge, and, and a ruler of Muslim peoples. And the sana were then all those ideas that were gathered saying basically like, here's Brody. We're going to look at his whole life and look how he lived. We're going to write. We're going to learn from that. And so they wrote all of that down and gathered it into one book called the Hadith, which supplements the Quran. So those may all be very new words to you. I think the following will not be another body of teachings in Islam is Sharia. Anyone heard that word? Just Mr. Maine. Have you heard Sharia law? David. So the word Sharia means law, so it's kind of like saying non bread or chai tea, just repetitive words that mean the same thing, like bread, bread, tea, tea. I thought that was funnier than it would be. And that's okay. That was a miss. That was a miss, Jack. But um, 
Anyways, the Sharia, it means law, and it lays down a strict and comprehensive guide of life and conduct for Muslims. It includes prohibitions against eating what? Pork, yes. They do not drink alcohol, and it also lists extensive punishments for stealing, adultery, apostasy. What's apostasy? So that's blasphemy. Okay. What's apostasy? So blasphemy would be saying anything uh, contrary to God or Muhammad. Right. Apostasy would be, what do we think about Judas Iscariot? He left the faith, right? So to apostatize is to turn your back on the teachings, right? Whether you say something negative about Muhammad or God or not, you are apostate. To blaspheme is to, to openly, is to draw Muhammad to some people. I don't know if you remember... It's been a while now, but there was a, a comic strip that drew Muhammad in Paris um, about 10 years ago. And then uh, some terrorists then went and shot up that place in response, like because they drew him. Um, so, again, it's very I'm not saying all Muslims are terrorists. That's not at all what I'm saying. But that's how people get that's that's how much important it is to them for them to not blaspheme their understanding of God. So that's just their basic teachings. They have six doctrines of Islam that every Muslim is required to believe. Now, when we talk about things in here, we talk about there's some differences between us and Catholics. There's some differences between us and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans. That was embarrassing. Lutherans, I'm sorry. Madeline, that was embarrassing. Uh, Episcopalians. And we're not required to believe what they believe. Now, we do express to you things if you want to join this church, if you want to be a member of this church, if you want. We do have three very basic things, right? You have to believe the gospel. We ask that you uh, profess your faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, and then you're baptized. And then we ask that you are a faithful follower of him in this church. That's all you're required to do here. The Muslims have six doctrines that everyone is absolutely required to do. The first is they have to proclaim that God, there is only one true God, and his name is Allah, and that Allah is all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Okay, you have to believe that. You have to believe in his angels, that the chief angel is Gabriel, who is the one who is said to have appeared to Muhammad. You have to believe in the holy books, scripture. So Muslims do believe in four God-inspired books, the Torah, which, which, which what is that? The Jews. What is it exactly? It's not the whole Old Testament. Like the first five books? Yeah, well done, Parks. First five books of the Old Testament, usually Mosaic law. Uh, they believe the Psalms, the Gospel of Jesus, and the Quran. So they, they think that's holy scripture. However... They think the Quran is, is Allah's final word given. And so that book is held much higher than the others. So they, they believe in Jesus as like a prophet, don't they? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and we'll get into that in just a second. They believe, so they believe in those books, but they believe that Jews and Christians corrupt, have corrupted the, the readings of the Bible. Um, you, the, so the other, uh, one of the other doctrines is Muhammad. The Quran lists 28 prophets, uh, which includes Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jonah, and Jesus. However, the greatest is Muhammad to them. Uh, on the last days, they have a doctrine that uh, all the dead will be resurrected uh, from their graves, and Allah will judge them to who is sent to heaven and to hell. 
And heaven is projected as a sensual place, a place of pleasure. And that's, all, you know, like, that's what its main idea is. Unlike biblical Christianity, which says uh, heaven is a place where we're united with God forever, for all eternity to praise him, Islam says it's a place where you enjoy yourself. It's meant for pleasure. It's meant for personal pleasure. And then they believe in predestination. What does that word mean? Yes, so that would be like a, a Christian understanding of it. Their understanding is that Allah has determined what he pleases and no one can change that. Can I, so another, when we talk about these things, we always talk about how important it is to know your Bible because some of these things can seem right. They can pass smell tests. But anyways, those six doctrines, they're not up for debate, right? We may have differences between a Protestant understanding of Scripture and a Catholic understanding of Scripture, and we might say, we'll debate those things in good faith. But these things are not debatable. Like they cannot be, uh, they cannot be discussed. They are what they are. And from that, they have the five pillars of faith. So these are major cornerstones of Islam. This is what guides their life as a Muslim. And they are, as you see on the screen, excuse me, standard of belief, prayer, alms, Ramadan and a pilgrimage to Mecca. So to become a Muslim, you have to publicly repeat what's called a shahada. And that's, it's a saying where you claim that you only believe in Allah and Muhammad. You have to do that publicly. Okay. What we say about biblical Christianity is that if you want to know God personally and you want Jesus to save you from your sins, do you have to stand up and publicly do that in front of thousands of people? No, you can do that at home in your bedroom. Now, ultimately, we say, hey, you should let people know, right? You shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. But it, it, God does not require you to stand up here and make it a public display. Islam requires that you publicly make this announcement. It's a statement of belief. Prayer. What do we know about Muslims and prayer? Oh, they have to face uh, towards Mecca. So they're always facing towards Mecca. True. How often do they pray a day? Five. Well done, Parks. They pray five times a day. So they pray uh, at daybreak when the sun comes up, noon, mid-afternoon, after sunset, and early evening. Now, just like there are people who claim to be Christians that don't live any way remotely as a Christian should live, there are plenty of Muslims who do not pray five times a day. Uh, I'm not advocating for them. I'm just saying... You know, not everyone does that, but it is a pillar of the faith. Alms, what does that word mean? Alms. Here, we give 10% of a tithe. So they give alms, and they give 2.5%, and it goes to widows, orphans, sick. It's very similar to the idea of a tithe. Um, where they get their number, I'm not sure. Ramadan, do we know what Ramadan is? You ever hear that in a calendar year? It is where they fast. Good job, ladies. And uh, no, it's not really, it's not really a, a holiday, but it's the ninth month of their Islamic calendar year, but it is the highest of their holy season. Okay, so Christmas can be one of our high moments in our calendar. We would generally say Easter is the 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 climactic point of the Christian calendar because that's when Christ defeated death and therefore what he did on the cross mattered. Um, but they are required to fast for the entire month. 
okay? Food and drink as well as, as smoking. Um, if they're married, like cannot have sex with their spouses, uh, they're, uh, that's forbidden. But they can eat, uh, but all that is forbidden during daylight hours. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> so they can't do any of those things while the sun is up. They can do any of those things while the sun is down. So a lot of Muslims during Ramadan eat very, very early in the morning and very, very late at night. And so then they fast. And they fast from all of those things uh, um, so that they remain worthy during that time. Now, if they commit any of those acts during uh, Ramadan, uh, everything is meaningless. Their fasting is meaningless. And then the last is pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, so Mecca, like uh, Bubba was saying, is their high holy place. Um, I don't think I have a picture of it in here. But um, there's this big black stone in um, the middle of a large opening space. It's called the Kaaba. That's actually where Muhammad went in and got rid of all those idols. That place is still there. Uh, and basically, they're, re- they're required to journey there on their own whether they're, if they are financially able to and physically able to. If they're not, they can send someone else. But once they get there, they have to walk around Mecca, you know, seven or so times, and it's just a, it's an interesting thing, uh, I would say. But those are their pillars of the faith. Yeah? Don't they have some connection to the Temple Mount Israel, too? Um, Isn't that like an alternative Mecca or something? Well, I think they have their understanding of it. Uh, I can't give enough uh, comment on it to be accurate? I don't know. Okay. I don't want to say anything, but that's a good question. I'll try to find out. Um, of course, there's, you know, as we see right now with all that's going on between uh, Hamas and Israel, these are all like gigantic disagreements over who is give, who uh, who has the right to be there, right? Is it the Muslim or is it the Jew? That one person. Isn't that like the terrorist people? Yeah, I, I mean, I... I realize that I, I just um, it's kind of harder to talk about. I didn't want to call the regular, but I mean, they've been warring for centuries. Um, Hamas. Yes, that is a smaller, isolated faction of extremism, which is wrong, regardless of how you look at it. Uh, but the idea that the Muslim and the Jew, they have been warring in those areas for centuries about who has the right to be there. Now, if we go back to the Abrahamic covenant, what does that say? God makes a promise to give him and his people land, right? And then you journey through the Old Testament, you see the exile, you see them uh, taken over by the Babylonians, and then eventually they're given this promised land. And so this is the continued battle from the times of the Bible. But we're going to switch real quickly to the Quran. So this is their book. I don't have one. I have a book that explains it downstairs, but I didn't, I didn't bring it up. Um, they proudly trace their ancestry back to Ishmael. Who is Ishmael? Isaac's brother. Isaac's brother, right? Um, a son of Abraham. And so while some of the teachings in the Bible may seem similar to the Quran, they are contradiction of what is actually taught in the Bible. For example, for Muslims, there is no trinity. Now put your feet down. Um, now is that, how many weeks in a row have we found people that don't believe in biblical Christianity Every single one of them has, has denied the Trinity, right? And once you deny the Trinity, a lot of things start to go downhill quick. They say Allah is one, and they mean that, one God. 
Uh, and they're actually wrongly taught that we're tritheists. What does that mean, Griffin? Three gods. That's not what we say, right? We say God, one God in three distinct persons. But they are taught that we believe in God the Father, Mary the Mother, and Jesus the Son, okay? Which is, is not accurate at all. Um, and so they have a grotesque understanding of what the Trinity is and also a great mis- misrepresentation of what the Bible actually teaches. They believe that uh, Allah is transcendent. What does that word mean, transcendent? All-powerful. And so, but they believe he's all-powerful and relatively impersonal. Um, So of the 99 names that they give him in the Quran, Father is omitted for two reasons. One, they don't want anyone to get Father, remember like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that we often understand the Trinity correctly. They don't want that connection to be made. And they also don't want the understanding of this caring person because they believe, as we talked about earlier, in predestination. So they don't want anyone to think like if, if Allah does not love you, he does not love you and you cannot change that. And so they don't want that mis- They don't want the word father like a fatherly figure. And it doesn't mean that we all have good earthly fathers, but they don't want that idea that he's personal to make it into your, your life. Now that is in stark contrast to what the Bible teaches. And rather than me just telling you that, we're going to read a little bit from that. So Macy, I want you to read Psalm 77, 10 through 15. Andrew, I want you to read Isaiah 43, 13. Emma, I want you to read Deuteronomy 7, 8. David, Jeremiah 3, 13. Reese, Ephesians 2, 4. And Miss Elizabeth, 1 John 3, 1. And then Presley Newport, 1 John 4, 7. So remember... Each week, we, we want to make a statement that they believe, and we don't, want to, we don't want Cole to just stand up here and say, well, this is why it's not true. We want to see what the Bible has to say. And so this is a contrast to what they understand is God is not personal, God is not loving. Go ahead, Mason. Psalm 77, what? 10 through 15. So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I remember the Lord's works. Yes, I remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done to mediate your actions. God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You have revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob. Powerful, redeeming God. Isaiah 43, 13. Also from today, on I of the alone, and none can rescue me from my power. I act and who can reverse it. So no one is as powerful as the God as the Bible. Deuteronomy 7, 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because the Lord loves you, he has freed you from oppression. Jeremiah 3.13. That's okay, buddy. 13. Jeremiah 3.13. Only acknowledge your guilt and you rebel against the Lord, your God. You have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed him. This is the Lord's declaration. So the, he's saying, uh, we've disobeyed him, yet he's given his grace like he scattered it to trees and, and strangers. He's thrown it out to everyone. So again, it's dark contrast that someone might say, hey, if God doesn't love Caroline, then too bad. Actually, it's saying God loves all people and has made an invitation through his son Jesus 
which we'll always talk about at the end. Ephesians 2, 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Needs no explanation. <laughs> He's rich in mercy because he loves us. 1 John 3, 1. So he even he goes so far, he says, not only do I love you, you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. First John 4, 7. First John 4, 7. Some, I'm known to mistype, so. Okay, we'll just let it be scripture and we'll move on. My bad. Point is, God is personal to the point that he knows you. The gospel of Matthew tells us he knows the amount of hairs on your head. That's how personally he knows you as well. I mean, is each person, he knows you better than you know yourself. And not only that, he loves you deeply so much that he sent Jesus to the cross to die for your sins. So this idea that Islam is correct because God is impersonal is, is asinine. That God is way off in this far place that doesn't he doesn't want to talk to you, doesn't want to listen to you. If he loves you, good. But if not, for lack of better words, you're screwed. Christianity says we're all screwed because we're all sinners, but there's been a way that's been provided for you through Jesus. And you don't have to remain that way. Now, the Quran also, but if they deny the Trinity, then it makes perfect sense that they deny that Jesus is the Son of God. They acknowledge him in existence, Griffin, as an earthly prophet, but he ranks far below Muhammad in their understandings. What does Jesus say, uh, Presley Newport, in John 14, 6, about who Jesus is? So maybe I typed this one correctly. Probably not. That's okay. No rush. John 14. Six. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty straightforward. You want to get to know God, you have to come through me, the Son. The Quran teaches that Jesus never died on the cross. The Quran teaches that each person, and this is this is what's neat. They, te- they teach that Jesus never died on the cross, and they also teach that everybody must take care of his or own, his or her own sins. So not only did no one do something, uh, die in your place so that your sins might be forgiven, you're stuck with making it right, which we know is impossible, right? The list would go on and on. Now, briefly, what we're going to talk about is the difference between Islam in the East and Islam in the West. When you, when you see what people say about Muslims in this country, what do they say? Terrorists. Nice people? Yep. Nice people? Like peaceful people? Um, isn't that what they say? Yeah. Community-oriented community people? Well-respected people? Um, right? They say those things about Muslims in this country. They say they're good people, and they are good. For the, I mean, as anyone can be good, they're good people. I, I have Muslim friends that I went to with high school, still talk to one. His name's Ibrahim. His name's Abraham. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good guy. Um, I try to share the gospel with him, but he's still, I mean, he's a good, you know, as far as morality goes, he's a good person. 
law-abiding citizen. Now, what about, that's Islam in the West, where we live, in the West, right? You, you understand what I'm saying? Like Western democracy, uh, freedom from government, those types of things. What do we think about Islam in the East? For an example, how many of us watched the World Cup this past summer, this past whenever it was? So where was it held? Qatar. Qatar. So Qatar is a theocracy, right? That country is ruled by Allah, right? They have a caliph, a caliph. Someone, so you, you, that, that place is over 70% Muslim. Now, they're actually one of the more relaxed Muslim states. But do you know, like when, so when everyone in FIFA, uh, I'm a big soccer fan, as you know, they were wearing armbands to support Pride Month. Did Qatar let them do that? No. no. They said, absolutely not. You will not do that. Uh, I'm not saying I support that lifestyle. But here in America, you can express yourself how you, how you wish, right? Whether it's good or bad for people around you, no one's going to say, as long as you're not breaking the law, you can't do that. In Qatar, they said, you will not wear those armbands. If you do that, we will fine you, we will punish you, because it's outlawed, right, in their country. And so how come in our country, where it's a Western country, Muslims are viewed peacefully and as good people, but in these countries that are ran by Islam, it's very strict, and so this is, this is why I'm saying this, is because even though our country is not a Christian country in whole, like I would say it is, I would say most people here are not truly Bible-believing Christians, our country was founded loosely on biblical truths, and everyone benefits from that. Whether you believe in the religion of, of God, uh, the, the Jesus of the Bible, whether you believe that or not, you benefit from living here because of your freedom of expression. Now, if you go to other countries where other religions rule, you, do, you are not awarded that freedom of expression, right? Like, for instance, if you go to Afghanistan, which is 99.99% Islam, you're not welcome as a Christian. In fact, one of the greatest places where underground Christianity is growing right now is in Afghanistan. And these people are leaving their families. And what do you think the risk is for them to step out and follow after Jesus? Death, not like a, like oh my gosh, my friends will make fun of me in high school. Which is, look, I'm not belittling that. That stinks and it hurts and it's never fun to be made fun of. But in Afghanistan, if Macy steps out, takes off her burqa and says, "I'm going to follow after Christ," she returns home. She will be murdered. And so, very different understanding of the strictness of this religion, depending on where you live in the world. And so I just wanted to share that with you because I find that fascinating, that depending on where you live, you might get a different interpretation of the strictness of their understanding of the Quran. Now, how do we reach Muslims for Christ? Number one, focus on the unity of Scripture, okay? The Quran does incorporate portions of the Old and New Testaments, yet we need to help Muslims see that the Bible has an internal, eternal unity and a cohesion that every book in the Bible, what does Jesus, uh, Dr. Mike say about each passage each week? It all points to Christ. And that's true. All 66 books point to who Jesus is. And so as he walked, uh, as Jesus was walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said in Luke 24, uh, he said that he was walking with them um, and interpreting to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. 
So we need to help Muslims understand that the Bible is unified. Okay, the Quran drops from place to place, from time period to time period. We need to say there, there is a story that's unified and has truly come from the hand of God. We need to focus on the biblical teaching of the nearness of God. Right? We used all those scriptures. Islam says God is far away. If he loves you, he loves you. If he hates you, he hates you. You can't do anything. You have to, you're responsible for your own sin. We need to teach them that God is both transcendent, meaning he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, but he also came down in the, in the form of a man, being fully man and fully God, in the form of Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins because he sought to accomplish redemption and to save us and to bring him back into a re- relationship with him. So he's personal and he's near to you. What do the Beatitudes say? God is near to those who are brokenhearted, contrite in spirit. So he's not far off away just laughing at you, saying, wow, what what a foolish person Jack Lee is. He's saying, I care intimately about Jack. I want Jack to live for me. I care about him. I created him in my image. And we need to help Muslims understand that there is a God who desires to know them personally. And lastly, you need to focus on atonement and assurance. What does atonement mean, David? Can you remember? It's been a while since we've talked about it. Anyone atonement? Come out of breath. Man, I'm just going hard up here. Doing great. Thanks, sister. Sure. Atonement. So Jesus died in my place. We call that the atoning sacrifice of Christ because he satisfies God's wrath towards me. He atoned for it. Not only was I forgiven, he took my place and he made it right. And so we need to understand, we need to help Muslims understand that you're not responsible for fixing your sins, you are responsible for repenting of your sins. Now, that sounds, that sounds tricky, right? You can't make your sins right, can you? No, you can't. Romans tells us all fall short, short of the glory of God, all have sinned, and you can't earn or merit salvation. So yes, you've sinned, all of you in here, myself included, so just go ahead and be at peace with that. But you can't make it right. And so that's good news for the Christian because there's someone who did. He atoned the wrath of God. The Muslim thinks that I, Cole, am responsible for making it right. And hopefully I'm predestined to be favored by God so that when I do obey him, he will forgive me. But if I'm not, then, oh well, what do I do? So we need to help them understand that there is no such thing as a works-based religion uh, because they live with uncertainty for all of their life, whether or not Allah will admit them into their understanding of heaven. We have a whole book in the New Testament, 1 John, that is devoting to how you may know that you've been saved. It says if you, if, you com- if you confess your sins, God is faithful to forgive them. And so we teach an entirely different message. You can be forgiven. You can be saved. Your sins can be wiped away. And you can have assurance. And so those three things are how you reach Muslims for Jesus. Any questions? Any, any, anything? So I know that compared to Mormons down here, Muslims may be smaller in number, but I promise you uh, they, are, they are your classmates, they are your neighbors, and so it is important to understand what they believe so that we may reach them with the gospel of Jesus.